You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And I'm Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing, Ankit? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And um, I guess on this episode, let's uh, take a bit of a turn from our last discussion on Pakistan and uh, go back to something of an old topic on this podcast that we used to talk about a lot in the early days of the show, about 150 episodes ago, which was... Uh, the East China Sea. I don't think we've done a dedicated episode on security issues in the East China Sea in a long time. Um, I think the last time we did one was maybe 2016 when things heated up a bit. But uh, I think, you know, there have been some events recently that merit a focused discussion on the situation in the East China Sea. So I think we'll split the discussion into two parts. Uh, The first part I want to talk about is the long-running dispute between China and Japan over the Senkaku slash Tiaoyu Islands uh, in the East China Sea, just a little bit off Taiwan, the in the southern reaches of the Ryukyu chain. Um, so we've had several incursions um, by Chinese vessels just in recent days, actually. Um, early in the new year, uh, just about a week into the new year, four China Coast Guard vessels entered the territorial sea of the disputed islands. Um, and just to go a little bit of background on the dispute, So Japan administers these islands um, and claims sovereignty over them, and China claims them but does not administer them and tries to impose its sovereignty by conducting its own patrols within the territorial sea and the contiguous zone of these uh, these islands. And it does so with the different bases depending on the kinds of vessels uh, it's using. So China has sent both its maritime law enforcement agency, the China Coast Guard, to the Senkakus. It has also sent the PLAN, the the Chinese Navy, but it has done so less frequently and and usually in the contiguous zone. Um, And also it has uh, dispatched uh, civilian trawlers with sometimes protection by the CCG to conduct fishing activities, again, and an exercise of sovereignty um, in this disputed area. So yeah, going back to the events of early 2018. So we had this first incursion about a weekend with four China Coast Guard vessels in the territorial sea. The Japanese government condemned that, released a statement as it, as it usually does. And mind you, these kinds of incursions occur scores of times every year. Um, it's become something of a regular occurrence since 2012 when Japan nationalized the Senkaku uh, Islands to prevent them from falling into the hands of the former hyper-nationalist governor of Tokyo, Shintaro Ishihara, who might have done something particularly provocative towards China with these islands. So uh, at the time, it was the Democratic Party of Japan government, and they decided to nationalize the islands, which kicked off this new period of tensions. Uh, There had been tensions between Japan and China near these islands before, but the situation since 2012 has gotten... um, has taken things to a whole new level, especially with Chinese President Xi Jinping coming in and taking a greater interest in asserting China's sovereignty in in the near seas. Um, So after this event concerning the four Coast Guard vessels, just days later, we had this remarkable incident um, involving a Type 54A Jiankai-2 frigate with the Chinese Navy. Um, And most interestingly, in a first, uh, this has never happened before, a a Type 93 Shang-class nuclear attack submarine, an SSN, in the contiguous zone of the Senkaku Islands. So China dispatched a nuclear attack submarine to the contiguous zone of the Senkakus, which it had never done before. Um, And and there's some interesting, um, I think, things to talk about here about why they did that. Um, And then just a few days after this submarine incident, which the Japanese Defense Ministry vehemently criticized, summoned the Chinese ambassador to file protest, um, we saw another incursion with, with three China Coast Guard vessels in the territorial sea. Um, so that's just a bit of background on these uh, incursions that have taken place. But Prashant, I think what's really interesting here is 
there's a little bit of an incongruity, and maybe it's not incongruous at all. Maybe this is part of a, a well-developed sort of Chinese initiative, um, because in, in November 2017, we see Chinese President Xi Jinping and Prime Minister Shinzo Abe meet on the sidelines of the APEC summit in, in Danang, and they have a pretty good meeting, um, suggestive of a, a restoration of good ties between China and Japan, if, or if not good ties, but working towards a better um, relationship overall. And then in December, the two sides make an important diplomatic breakthrough on their long-standing talks towards a crisis management mechanism in the East China Sea, sometimes described as a hotline, but it's a little bit more than that. It's a way to manage sort of unforeseen scenarios between the two countries to prevent any kind of escalation or unintended miscalculation. Um, so, you know, Prashant, if you think back at uh, the trajectory of where things were going between China and Japan, also the East China Sea breakthrough, um, what to you suggest that, uh, you know, might be, what might be behind this sort of uptick, I guess, in Chinese activity in the Senkakus um, in the new year? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and I think and I think you you framed it exactly correctly because um, often we have a focus on these um, kinetic actions by either on the Chinese side or the Japanese side, either in terms of incursions or jet scrambles or military buildups on on each side, but it isn't tied to the broader uh, China Japan relationship and its trajectory. And I think that question is really important, particularly for 2018, because as you noted. Um, not only have Abe and Xi um, had a number of interactions that have suggested that 2018 could be a big year for China-Japan relations, but it's also you know the 40th anniversary of the signing of the Sino-Japanese Peace and Friendship Treaty, right? And these anniversaries in Asia sometimes you know give room for both sides to try to at least uh, make some kind of inroads in, in their diplomatic relationships. So you have on the one hand these promising diplomatic signs in terms of both on the Chinese and Japanese side, attempts to say, okay, you know, 2018 is an opportunity for us to make inroads on the diplomatic side, but you have 2018 starting with uh, the Chinese making these uh, incursions. And, and so the, the, the question is, and the, the, the Chinese foreign ministry has said uh, repeatedly in response to comments about what the Japanese have said, that they, they want to see whether the goodwill from the Japanese side uh, actually sustains itself into 2018, that you know, it remains to be seen whether Japan is actually going to follow through on this. I mean, you know, the question is, will this China-Japan uh, perceived you know diplomatic inroads in 2018 coexist with um, continued incursions by the Chinese, uh, as we've seen in the past few weeks? If that is the case, um, as people suspected uh, towards the end of last year, then the 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 prospects for uh, some kind of major inroads in China-Japan relations would actually be pretty remote, right? Because it's very difficult for the Japanese to be able to absorb this kind of pressure uh, while making inroads in in the China-Japan relationship more generally. Um, but I do think you know if we separate out uh, the East China Sea issue, which kind of generates its own pattern of of escalation as well as um, sort of periodical efforts by both sides to try to come up with mechanisms to regulate things. I mean, there are other dimensions of the relationship where we could see progress in uh, 2018, right? One of those things is, for example, you know, Abe is still 
despite the fact that Japan hasn't been too gung-ho about the, the One Belt, One Road initiative uh, that, that, that China's proposed, he still left the door open for that um, in 2018. So maybe we could see some movement on, on, on that avenue, for example. There could be you know some inroads diplomatically in terms of working out peace mechanisms and such. But I do think you know that is the, the, the question that, as you framed it for 2018, I mean, the, the, this diplomatic outreach for, by both sides, but also these continued incursions. I mean, it, can these two things coexist? Right, right. I think that's a. I think that's a good way to frame it. I think there's sort of, um, at least what I've been thinking about is, is, is this something explained on sort of a comprehensive geopolitical level as a Chinese attempt to sort of recalibrate the terms of engagement with Japan? Because uh, I think we've seen that happen before, uh, specifically with the East China Sea. There have been periods of uh, incredibly intense activity, right? I'm thinking of late 2013 when China declared its air defense identification zone in the East China Sea, followed by 2014, which was an incredibly busy year in the East China Sea as uh, as China was building its artificial islands in the South China Sea. We also observe this pattern that analysts talk about sometimes of um, Chinese activity sort of waxing and waning between the two seas, depending on um, what Beijing is pursuing. And obviously, as we've discussed on this podcast, the South China Sea has been... Um, comparatively quiet to uh, what it was like in 2015 and 2016, certainly the first half of that year. Um, you know, I mean, there's also other dynamics here. I mean, uh, we're seeing this incursion take place after Japan has become a vocal proponent of this Indo-Pacific concept that the Trump administration is putting forward. Um, we, we've also seen the 19th Party Congress end, uh, potentially leading to some shifts in Chinese foreign policy, though I think the jury's still out on just how far um, we're actually going to observe changes. Um, there's also this really interesting angle um, that I didn't really see mentioned in many places, but I think the uh, the Financial Times picked up on it, uh, which was that the International Hydrographic Organization, uh, which charts sort of undersea topography, um, granted a, a bunch of names to the Japanese um, in the East China Sea, and they gave more sort of named features to Japan than they did to China, um, which... I think the Financial Times was speculating was partly behind this sort of submarine incursion, right? It was sort of an attempt at, by China potentially to uh, assert a degree of undersea sovereignty um, if this right. sort of IHO determination was made in, uh, in, I believe, early January or maybe late December. But it seems to be one of the more proximal causes of this activity because I think the submarine as a tool here is... is um, is worth consideration. China's used a range of assets in the East China Sea, everything from fighters to drones to surface vessels, but it's never used a submarine before. Um, and obviously that introduces a new domain uh, into this into this whole idea. And the East China Sea, you know, uh, Japan and China have other issues outside of the Senkaku, right? They're trying to delineate the uh, equidistant line, uh, the equidistance line between their, their two countries, um, which has... Uh, been a difficult process. Uh, they've had a, a joint agreement since 2008 on um, resource exploration, which uh, the Japanese claim China is not honored by sort of drilling into uh, underwater oil fields that, that span both sides of that line using a bunch of oil rigs. Um, so I think this under undersea dimension here um, merits a little bit more consideration. And potentially, you know, we'll see more um, submarines make their appearances in the East China Sea, especially as the PLAN grows more confident, right? We've seen Type 93 submarines, for example, engage in expeditionary operations in the Indian Ocean. So I think the East China Sea might, um, you know, turn into a, a regular zone now for Chinese submarines in some way. Yeah, and I, I think you're right to, to pay attention to the kinds of assets that the Chinese are deploying, um, because as we've seen, 
in the East China Sea and also the, the South China Sea, the Chinese are very careful about how they uh, calibrate the use of uh, various assets in these waters. And usually it tends to be calibrated in a way that what they're trying to do with each incursion or set of incursions is to try to normalize or regularize particular kinds of behavior right in a very incremental fashion so you know the the, the submarine use is significant um, in that aspect I, I think one other aspect that you touched on that that's that's really important is um, you know in addition to the party Congress in China you all you have two leaders in, in Abe and Xi who are going to be a, around for you know a number of years uh, after this so it, it really is an important relationship to watch not just in terms of the China-Japan relationship, but Abe and Xi as well. I mean, both these leaders have now strengthened their position uh, domestically following uh, 2017. And in 2018, I mean, with, with all these uh, changing regional dynamics, right, you have, as you mentioned correctly, I mean, the, the Trump administration's uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. You have, you know, the 40th anniversary between the, the two sides, China and Japan. But you also have, you know, the other thing that we've been talking about this podcast a lot, which is the um, tensions in, in, with respect to North Korea um, and the prospect of potentially, you know, this trilateral leader summit uh, that, that that's going to be held this year and also, you know, potentially a return to, to talks with North Korea. So, there, you know, this relationship is taking place uh, within the context of, you know, a huge amount of regional flux, um, which I think will make it exciting to watch in, in 2018. Absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, while we're talking about the East China Sea, I do want to address this um, this oil spill that we saw uh, just about 12 days ago, almost two weeks ago. Um, so just by way of background, um, an Iranian tanker uh, carrying um, refined oil uh, sank in the East China Sea um, after colliding with a freighter. This happened about in the first week of January towards the end. Um, we don't have an exact locational data. It, it seems to have happened closer to the Chinese coast than to uh, Japan's waters. Um, it was carrying about 136,000 tons of, uh, of fuel oil, um, which ended up catching fire. And we saw some remarkable pictures of that in the press. Um, and most of the reporting, I think, came from Chinese sources initially. Um, so the ship has sunk completely. The um, the crew is presumed to have been entirely lost, comprised of uh, uh, 30 Iranians, two Bangladeshis, um, all believed to be dead now. Um, but, uh, you know, this, I think, portends potentially a major environmental disaster in the East China Sea, and we might start seeing it um, spill over into Japan's exclusive economic zone. I believe uh, some of the geographic information I saw about the location of the spill indicated that it was about 200 miles off the Okinawa coast, uh, which is suggestive of the fact that it would probably end up in Japan's uh, 200 nautical mile um, exclusive economic zone, uh, bringing the Japan Coast Guard into this, potentially adding a bit more transparency to the location and the circumstances of this spill. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, this is no doubt a, a major tragedy, both on a human level and an environmental level in the East China Sea, Prashant. But do you see sort of any, any scope here for um, any kind of productive collaboration between China and Japan? I mean, this is a situation that we haven't really seen recently in the East China Sea. The U.S. Navy played some um, somewhat of a role in assisting in search and rescue here. Um, but, but you know, how could this incident and its management sort of lead to some degree of cooperation between these countries? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're 
I'm glad we're, we're discussing this element of it too, because I think with both the East China Sea and the South China Sea, often we, we do talk a lot about the, the security dynamics, but these crises do demonstrate um, that there is a huge environmental angle to this, right? Like whether it's in terms of uh, the pollutants of the surrounding waters, but also, you know, the things that we've been hearing about uh, in media reports, which is, you know, what, what are the effects on the environment, the effects on, on fishery stocks? So th this is a really important question and, and angle that we're addressing here. Um, and I, I do think um, you're, you're right to ask the question, you know, what does this mean for broader cooperation? Because often um, when we see environmental incidents like this, it really does reinforce the importance of uh, cooperation in terms of environmental management, but also needing these various countries, including China and Japan, to have the proper protocols and communications mechanisms in place and the commensurate trust, uh, at least of a certain level, to be able to jointly manage these issues in spite of disputes that they may have. And, you know, China and Japan have been discussing, you know, various communications mechanisms. And obviously, you know, the, the, the pace of that uh, development has been much slower than the uh, tensions that have occurred between them and the existing incursions. I mean, one hopes that this kind of incident will reinforce uh, the need for additional cooperation. But I suspect, I mean, you know, just to compare this with other situations, whether it's the Indian Ocean tsunami or whether it's um, previous events we've seen in the South China Sea involving ship vessel incidents, right? I didn't sense that there was, I, I sense that there was a lot more uncertainty about the capabilities of various states as well as the communication protocols in, in place than some of these other disasters previously. And I think, you know, that's quite worrying. There have been some media reports about the capabilities that both sides have, and there was even uncertainty about uh, the access to technology that they had in this in this realm. So. I, I'm not sure what this means for cooperation going forward, but I certainly hope that it reinforces the need for that cooperation to occur. Absolutely. Um, well, I think let's uh, let's leave things there for this week. Um, I think uh, you know we'll we'll definitely be revisiting the East China Sea because I don't think uh, these disputes are going anywhere. But I'm, I was glad to have a dedicated discussion with you um, about about some of the issues we've seen here recently. Um, yeah. So for our listeners, um, definitely stay up to speed with the podcast by subscribing if you haven't done so already. If you have been a subscriber for a while or if you've been listening for a while and you like what you hear, uh, do leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps get the word out about the show. And uh, if there's anything you'd like us to treat on the podcast that you haven't seen in an episode on a while, definitely reach out to either Prashant or me on um, over the internet. Twitter or email is fine, and we'd be happy to consider it for future inclusion. Thanks a lot for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week with more.